When we think of this time leading up to Christmas and the Christmas story, often what comes to mind for us is like a census that is decreed and going to Bethlehem and riding on a donkey and shepherds and stars and wise men. This year, during this season we call Advent, where Christians around the world and for centuries live in this kind of state of anticipation, anticipating celebrating Christmas when Christ has come. We're going to look at something different than, you know, the census and the shepherds and the stars and the wise men, different than even kind of the traditional Advent, uh, hope, peace, joy, love. We're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. Now, you might be saying, genealogy, I'm not coming for the next four weeks, which is funny because islanders are usually into this kind of thing, right? Like, islanders pride themselves in asking who your father is and tracing you back to, you know, you came over on the poly at this, you know, this year with this lot and this crew. This is the town you're from, and this is what your grandfather did, and those kind of things. In the same way, genealogies really mattered to first century Jews reading the stories of the life of Jesus in the gospel accounts. They mattered for a few different reasons. Let me read to you the first verse in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 1, verse 1. It says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now these genealogies that the first century Jews and those who were learning about Jesus read, they mattered to them for two reasons. They mattered as a lineage. First of all, because the Messiah, the claim that they're making about Jesus is that the Messiah was supposed to be a descendant of King David. That God made a promise to King David way back hundreds of years before Jesus that one of his descendants would forever be on the throne, would be the anointed one, would be the Messiah. And so it was important for them to see, okay, this guy Jesus you're talking about is actually a descendant, a direct descendant from King David, who God made that promise to. But it was also important from a, a theological perspective. The, that the Messiah coming, Jesus, would be a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Now, back way early in the book of Genesis, God made a promise to Abraham that his offspring would bless all the nations of the world. That all the world will be blessed through his offspring. And we see that this is being pointed to in how this genealogy is set up. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. He's from the line of King David. And the son of Abraham. That he fulfills the promise that God made to Abraham. That every nation would be blessed through Abraham's descendant. So through Advent, over these next four weeks leading up to Christmas, we are going to anticipate the coming of Christ by looking at the family line of those who came before Christ. We're going to look at, at four people or events throughout the lineage of Jesus that help us flesh out this anticipation. We're going to look at people who are imperfect. We're going to look at people who were used by God to bring about the Messiah on earth. And kind of the way that we're shaping this series is understanding that, that Jesus came through these people, 
but ultimately as the Messiah, he came for them in the redeeming work that he would bring. So let's keep reading. Let's read this uh, genealogy. If, you, um, if you've got a Bible with you, flip to Matthew 1, a Bible app. Uh, we're just going to focus on the first uh, three verses here. I realized I was supposed to bring my Bible up with me, so I'm, I'm opening my apps with you, okay? We'll edit this part out of the podcast. <laughs> Matthew 1, verses 2 through 3. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. This morning, we are going to look at Tamar as the first person in this genealogy. Now, you may not know who Tamar is, and I don't blame you, unless you're kind of a Bible geek. The the life and story of Tamar isn't isn't a huge part of the biblical narrative, but it's surprising that it's in there. It's surprising that Matthew, as he's putting together this genealogy, he includes Tamar. First of all, because she's a woman, and in the kind of patriarchal society, it's all drawn through the lineage of the, of the man. And so he already said that, you know, Perez and Zerah came from Judah, but he inserts in there their mother was Tamar. Why is it that he kind of adds this unnecessary, you know, addition to the genealogy that he's noting that it's Tamar? She's one of four women that are included in Matthew's genealogy, which is unusual, like I said, because it's traced through uh, the, the father. And so this is showing us something of the, the, the lives of these women are significant in our understanding of this genealogy by the very fact that they're present. Not every generation in the genealogy has both the mother and the father present. So it should pique our interest. And so three of the four weeks that we're actually looking at this genealogy, we're going to be looking at these moments of where the, the mother's name is inserted next to the father's. Because it's this hint to us of like, this is, this is here for a special reason. It's also interesting that it's here because it's a scandalous thing. And as we get into the story, you'll see why. It's scandalous that they would have Tamar's name in here because of how these children came about, how uh, Judah had these children with her. And I think it points to something, a, a level of honesty in the writing of this, of if we were like making this all up, we wouldn't include them in here. Like, we wouldn't include the scandalous stories that might reflect poorly on the family. Right? It's not just your family that's messed up, it's also Jesus' family that's messed up. And the more we dive in, the more that we see. So we're going to look at Tamar's story a little bit in order to ask the question, why, why is she here in the genealogy of Jesus and why is it important? So let me start back when we think of Abraham. 
God chose Abraham out of all the people on earth, and he said, I'm going to make my covenant with you, a promise with you, that I'm going to bless the nations through your offspring. I'm going to give you as many descendants as there are stars in the sky or sand on the seashore, even though Abraham and his wife were like way past the, the window of years of when you're having kids. And so this whole theme throughout the book of Genesis and, and the generations after Abraham is like, the importance of the offspring, of the children born to this family that God promised their, their children were going to bless the nations. This lineage was important to them because God made a promise that your offspring are going to bless the world. And so we see generation after generation, this desire of like, I need to have the chosen children that are going to carry on this promise. This goes through the generations, right, of Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Judah and his brothers. And Judah had a son named Ur. And Ur marries Tamar. And Ur was a really bad guy. And what we read in the story is that God actually put him to death. Ur was that kind of guy. And so what took place is Ur's younger brother, Onan, marries Tamar. This was a practice in the ancient Hebrew culture called a leverate marriage, where because of the importance of carrying on the family line, the promised offspring, it was the duty of the next closest male in the family to marry the, the widow of his brother and, and to to get her pregnant so that the first child that she bore would be considered the deceased husband's son and he would inherit everything that the deceased husband had. It was a strange practice. We don't do it anymore. That would be kind of weird. But it was, it was a significant part of their culture. And we read throughout the line of Jesus, this takes place a few different times. It's a way of saying the family line doesn't end here. We want it to continue even though we have to kind of go through some weird means of doing it. And so Onan marries Tamar because his brother Ur died. But Onan refuses to get Tamar pregnant. He's, he does not want a, any child that he bears to actually be, be considered Ur's son and to inherit Ur's wealth. He wants them to be his own son. And we read that God puts him to death for it in the same way that he put Ur to death. This leaves Tamar in this weird place of I'm supposed to be bearing children in this promised line. A lot of identity and worth in women of those days was in the fact that they could bear children, particularly in a promised line that God had made through Abraham and his descendants. And so Tamar is left widowed and childless. And so Judah, her father-in-law, says to her, live as a widow, go back and live with your parents, and wait until my youngest son, Shelah, grows up. And once he's grown up, you can marry him, and maybe he'll give you children. Interesting arrangement. But it seems good enough 
for Tamar. And so she lives as a widow and moves back with her family. The problem is, Shelah grows up, years pass by, and Judah never makes the arrangement with Tamar for them to get married and for him to provide for her a child that would carry on the family line. I'm going to let the rest of this story just be read to you from Scripture so that you can, you can see I'm not embellishing anything. We're going to be in Genesis 38, verses 14 to 26, if you're following along. 38, 14 to 26. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah, her father-in-law, saw her, He thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord. And the staff in your hand, she answered. So she gave, he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend to the Adullamite in order to get his, his friend the Adullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road to Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she's now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth to one of them, uh, one of them put out its hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist. This one came out first. 
But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. And his brother, who the scarlet thread, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and his name was Zerah. Quite a story. This is the Bible for you. You can imagine this scandalous situation, this shame being brought on the family. You can imagine it being a reason why you wouldn't want to name your son Judah. I thought that joke would kill. Okay. But why, why is Tamar included in the genealogy? Why would they highlight this story? Why is this shameful event that all it does is shed shame and, and, and shows the foolishness of the great patriarchs of Israel's family and the family of Jesus? Why is this put here on purpose by Matthew? Well, there's no chapter and verse place that says this is why it's here. This is what you can learn from it. But I think it's wise for us to kind of reflect theologically on on what does this show us, knowing what we know about God? So there are three things that I think are, are being shown to us in the Tamar and Judah story being included in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Three things. is God desires all to be part of his family. God redeems even the worst parts of our story. And our identity in Jesus outweighs our shame. Here's what I mean by this. That God desires for all people to be part of his family. God's heart has always been for all of the nations to be blessed through the Messiah. That all kinds of people would be welcomed into the family of God. It was never meant to be just a specific uh, lineage or group of descendants from Abraham but that all people eventually will be brought in. Not just men in that society, but also women. Tamar being written down. Not just descendants of Abraham, but outsiders. She was not from the descendants of Abraham. Even those who have a questionable track record, kind of like you and me, God's heart has always been to include us into his family. So today, as we read this story, we have to be reminded that God's invitation is to be part of his family through Jesus, and that extends to all kinds of people, even the kinds of people that we wouldn't expect, even the Tamars and the Judas that we read of and that we encounter in our day-to-day life. The second is God redeems even the worst parts of our story. Now, this incident is obviously not the the shining pinnacle in the life of of Judah and Tamar's lives. Like, there are other things they would love to be known for, I'm sure. This is a moment in their life, probably the lowest moment that we read in their lives. A moment that would be full of regret and shame and pain and betrayal one of dishonor, one where they would be looked down upon by their community. 
But God took what was perhaps the worst moment in these two's lives and He used it as a part of His plan to bring about the Messiah. He took the most shameful part of their past and redeemed it into something that He's going to use in His redemption of all nations. And so you and I, we may be surprised by how some of our shameful moments in our lives are actually things that God is going to use moving forward for His glory. The things that we were ashamed about, the things that that we would want to remain hidden, the things that we wouldn't write into a genealogy if we're doing up a family tree, but those might actually be things that God uses to bring His glory and in His work of bringing others into relationship with Him. Third, our identity in Jesus outweighs our shame. When we're connected to Jesus, that becomes bigger and more significant in our lives than the shame of our past. Tamar went down in history for generations as the woman written of in Genesis who found a way to get pregnant by her father-in-law by pretending to be a prostitute so she could have kids. Like, that's not, a, that's not a fantastic reputation. But it was the reputation that she carried for years and generations and how many descendants remembered her. Judah was the guy who was known for not being able to control his urges and then unknowingly sleeping with his daughter-in-law and getting her pregnant, only to be publicly shamed in front of the village when they find out who it is. That's how people thought of Judah. Especially, you read the next chapter after Genesis 38, it's a story about how Joseph, Judah's brother, was uh, the the wife of Potiphar tried to seduce him and, and get her to sleep with him, and he refused. Like, you put the two stories side by side, and Judah doesn't look very good. He's known as the brother who slept with his daughter in law. Until God makes his promise that the Messiah would come through this line. Until a promise with King David. And then promise that continues through the generations into the genealogy of Jesus. Where now, when we think of Judah, we think of that is the lineage of Jesus. Our first thought about Judah isn't, remember that time he slept with his daughter-in-law? All of a sudden, the most important thing we know about Judah and Tamar is that these are names of dignity and importance because through these two comes the family of the Messiah in a way that outshines the shame of their actions. You and I, we might be people who are are defining ourselves by some of the shame of our past. From the abuse of our childhood or the names that we were called growing up, or the lives that we lived in high school or college, or the addictions that we had, the divorce or the affair or the failed business. We may have made those things who we are, but our connection to Jesus actually becomes the definer of our lives and gives our lives a value in a far greater way than any of those moments of shame.
those don't become the thing that defines us, our connection to Jesus does. Because God looks at you and he sees someone who looks like his son. God looks at you and he sees someone who is righteous and beautiful and worthy because his son came into the world and died on the cross for our moments of shame and sin and foolishness. He took upon himself on the cross the very consequences of our actions and our shame, of Tamar's actions and Judah's shame, and he defeated death in rising. We are freed from the guilt and the shame. Those moments are redeemed in a way that God can use them and we are restored into relationship with God's family. For Judah and Tamar, Jesus didn't just come through them, he came for them. Jesus came for us too. Let's pray. Jesus, you are... You come from a spectacularly interesting family. One that would um, make our own family conflict and baggage seem like nothing. Yet you are, are one who came to redeem us from all of that. Jesus, my prayer is this morning as we, we hear this, as we hear of your family and your ancestors and this story that it would be something that we realize that, that we can find that redemption too. That there is hope in you to overcome our shame. I pray if there are those of us here in this room where we've been carrying, on, carrying our shame with us for a long time, that, that we would be reassured by the good news of your gospel that that, that is not what defines us that you've taken our shame, our sin, and its consequences upon yourself on the cross. And we don't need to bear it anymore. Help us to live in the freedom and life that that gives us. In your name we pray. Amen.